So the first album you worked with Ben on was uh, Hy Hy do you say Hydra or Hydra? Hydra or? Yeah, I think Hydra. Hydra. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, such a great album. I really love it. Yeah. Uh, was it the case there that Patitucci came in after the fact, or did you guys record that was recorded all, That was recorded together. Interesting. Yeah, that yeah. those were recorded together. Sometimes, you know, we, there would there would be overdubs, or we'd go back and punch a part or something. But yeah, it was, I mean, that was mostly live. Mm -hmm. it's, Do you have any memories from that recording that you'd like to share? Oh yeah, well, tons. I mean, it, again, it was a long process, and I was young, younger at that point. I don't know, maybe I was 24 or 23, so I was pretty, pretty green uh, at that point. So <laughs> I was, was kind of learning on the job, I guess you could say. And I, again, don't really know why, completely why Ben trusted me to oversee it. I think it kind of evolved from where we started, sort of working tentatively on a few pieces, and then it evolved. But yeah, what I remember was really just the same thing i remember from these recordings which just ben's intense you know focus and um precision with how accurate he needed the parts to be and how many you know we in some cases we record things multiple times to get it up to the level where he needed it to be um you know especially with that piece on that record called 39 i remember mm -hmm. that one in particular took a lot of effort um as far as the performance some days like i think where ben writes on guitar often it's um at the edge of what he can actually play so it certain days it might just not be really working so we kind of have to accept that um that there's going to be t attempts to record stuff that aren't going to work um mm -hmm. which is unusual most recording dates are kind of you sort of know what you're getting into and you know that it will work i don't think that's sort of was the case on a lot of but maybe some pieces on hydra some of the simpler stuff but like Hydra 39, those ones, I mean, they were very much on the edge of like everyone being able to hold it together, kind of like the commission. It's like at the edge of like what you can do. So, yeah, I remember lots of, you know, yeah, just lots of time with me and Ben editing and figuring stuff out and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, ultimately, it was one of the first records I'd done of that scale and scope. There was another record of my own music. I think I sent it to you called The Seller and Point, which was sort of at that same time period so there there were two kind of like records of similar intent and scope as far as um just the complexity of the arrangements and the amount of time that was spent on them so i feel like those are two kind of like sister records so they both kind of you know um informed each other in terms of production but yeah no ben it was just a long precise process like this one mm. there was some moments i'm i usually i'm fascinated with the the craft of doing overdubs or planning a planning a the, like a production process already in advance in terms mm -hmm. of okay what we're gonna what will be the basic track for this for the other stuff to build on and with um hydra there were a lot of moments where i was surprised that what i thought at first would be like the base the basic track Especially there, there's, there's a choir section, like a yeah. choir solo section. Right. And it starts out. And then I think after a while, I, I feel like, okay, what I had been assuming to be the, the base for everything you mean is the actually meter, the meter or not the meter, but like, um, just basically what uh, Theo, uh, recorded first. Yeah. You know, I see. After a while, I feel like, 
No, that can't be it. It has to be an, one of the other voices that comes in later somehow. You know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like a weird, it's hard for me to describe. Well, but that's that comes to just you know. Following, it's a magic trick, you know. Yeah, in something a way. like that. I mean, a lot of it is just like that. Like sections like that were done with a click, but it's mm -hmm. pre it's pre production. It's it's planning. It's looking at the score and saying, okay, this section, you know, the, the way we need to do this to execute it musically and precisely is is we're going to need this guide track, and so okay, we'll record up to here without a click. And then at this point, the click comes in and, you know, we program out all the things and then you can hear that in your phone, headphones and whatever. So it's, yeah, it's just kind of like building this scaffolding that supports the whole composition. So I guess that, that is an interesting point you bring up. I mean, in, in, in Ben's music, sometimes, at least the records I've worked on, which I think are probably the most produced, you know, things that he's done, um, there's often this scaffolding layer of, yeah, either pre-production or click tracks or you know multiple overdub layers and stuff like that that are very much part of the composition like on that record the opening piece um elysium has like four or five or maybe even six like acoustic guitars that are all like these cascading arpeggio yeah forms. and that was like kind of written and and we knew i mean that wasn't like an afterthought that was something that ben kind of came with concept complete and we sort of did did it you know in stages and mapped it out i don't remember whether i don't even think that was with the click but the point being that each piece brings up its own challenges and you have to find a way to um yeah execute the, the score faithfully but also um make it musical and, and make the process not sound stiff so i think exactly yeah yeah that's i mean that's a big thing for for those kind of records to me I, in fact like last night i was working with the composer where we were doing a very similar thing like he has this piece for you know it's like a large ensemble with string quartet and vocalists and but the idea is to record it kind of in stages. So we have a whole spreadsheet of sort of like, okay, we're gonna get this first and then this first and then this first, because this person needs to hear this layer and this, this, you know, so there's a, you know, a lot of records I make, it's all done live. And I think that's an amazing way to make records too. But I don't really, I, I find that it, it's really, the material suggests the approach, you know, rather than mm -hmm. posing an approach on it in advance. So if someone else came to me and, and came with a project where they'd been playing the music live for years and the band was together for years and, and the music was feeling great and they just got back from a tour. I mean, I would never try to do anything with, you know, pre-production. I mean, it's just, we just want to capture that magic of that group in that point in time. So, you know, like the caveat to all this is like, this is, we're talking about one artist that I work with and, and his specific process. And for that music, that's the solution that I found works you know and but for other projects it will be like you know polar opposite of that and it's just up to you know you have to just listen to the material and see what it what it needs and then uh, you know plan accordingly i guess yeah and also after the fact i usually don't care how it's done i mean i'm interested now how it's done but if the music doesn't grab me, right. I don't care exactly. how intricate the process is, that, you know? That's important. Yeah, because it's easy or, to get down the rabbit hole of thinking that, you know, oh, we're mapping all this out. and But yeah, exactly. If it doesn't sound good, it doesn't really matter how much effort is put into the details or whatever. Yeah, or how it is done even. Like, or how, is it is it people or is it, you know, uh, is it uh, just programmed computer stuff or whatever, you know? Is it? I don't care if it if it has the the magic that I'm looking for in music. Exactly. I don't I don't care how it's done. Exactly. I think all that stuff is secondary to a degree, you know, and and so that's why I don't, you know, yeah, I 
like I was saying, going back to the initial thing about the oral result is really what I care about. Like the the integrity of the score or the integrity of the Pro Tools session, like that, I could give a shit. I mean, <laughs> it just needs to sound good. So whatever gets us there, that that's what we do. And that, that could mean, yeah, something really hands off and just like let the musicians play and do their thing and don't really talk. I mean, one example of someone I work with who's like that is like Tim Byrne, like mm -hmm. with Tim Byrne a lot. And he doesn't really, there's no discussion really. I mean, I mean, it's not to say it's not very well planned in his head, but he chooses the musicians. He, I mean, I'm talking about his more improvised sessions that I've done. I've also done composed, crazily composed music with him, but I just mean like certain improv sessions with him. It's like the, the less words, the better, you know, like, yeah. And, uh, you know, like the less things said, the less, you know, the, the better. So, so like, that's a totally different way of doing it. And, and, um, doesn't, you know, there's really no pre-production. It's just like arrive with microphones and hit record. And then like, you know, two months later, Tim will tell you the record's out or something, you know, it's like, it's like mm. that vibe. <laughs> mm. I guess, um, next to the ears and the musical understanding and and uh, of course also technical understanding one of the most important virtues for a record um, engineer sound engineer is also is empathy right mm. like feeling feeling out exactly what you're talking about like what does this artist need and what when does his music begin uh, begin to um, flourish and and his creative or her creative um um stream when does it start how does it start totally it's so important to like understand not only how that particular artist ticks and not try to impose some template on everyone really understand their subjective experience of things you know um but also yeah like getting to know their their process and how and what's going to make them like you said like what's going to get the best results um And that really does vary from artist to artist. The other thing I, I do find is that because I have, you know, I have a performance background and, and play music, it's often easier for me to be empathetic with like, okay, you know, like, I, I don't know. I'm not like, I've noticed sometimes like things like headphone mixes in a studio will be the last thing that people pay attention to. But for me, like I know as a musician, if I'm in a studio and the headphone mix is bad as a drummer or something, like I can't function. I have to, it has to be really good. So like as an engineer, I want to make sure everyone's like super, super comfortable with hearing everything and I'll like triple and quadruple check. Like you can hear everything, right? Like you're getting what you mm. need, right? Or, you know, like making sure that the musicians are super comfortable because often those are like the, the details that make a record great or not, you know, I mean, to a degree or or at very least, like if if not addressed properly can hold a record back. Let's just say it that yeah. way. Um, Yeah. So like, I think that helps to know how it feels to be on the other side of the process and to have empathy. That's like a really well, good way of saying it. And I think it's, uh, yeah, I don't know if I had to like summarize my entire job, it's just really just listening. I mean, in a way I found like the perfect job for what I like to do. It's just, I just like listening to things like people. I like absorbing stuff. And so, um, that's sort of every project that i go into i just like that's part of the homework of it is like listening to that person's catalog understanding where they're coming from having conversations talking it through talking about hey on this record i was listening to you know where did you record that oh we recorded it here well what did you like about that well it was it was great it was this engineer blah 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 but this was shitty you know and just trying to understand like what what did they like what did they not like i think that's so crucial and oftentimes it just gets elided in the like like you were saying like the scheduling and the kind of like 
details of the thing there's this kind of like finer grained notion of how to record records like the art of it and the empathy of it that um is really important yeah were there role models for you uh, or people that you kind of uh, paid close attention to when it comes to this topic engineering you mean or the empathy in, <coughs> in uh, sound engineering um not really i mean i can't think of any particular examples but or did show did somebody show you how to listen in a way to well, pay attention to certain things yeah that's a really important question um I don't know, actually, I, if I were to attribute it to anything, it's just growing up. I don't know if you were like this, but growing up, I had a circle of friends who were really into music and we were really obsessed with like finding really obscure records and going deep into them. And I think there was like this monoculture thing where someone would be like, Hey, check this out. And like, Oh man, check out this drummer and blah, blah, blah. And so there was like this kind of community of like, where we all reinforce one another's like depth of listening and we're all like super into it, but, but people, you would grow and you would observe other people's intensity with the listening and, and it would just kind of blossom from there. And so I just always, I guess I've always tried to surround myself with those kind of people who are really excited. I mean, it doesn't even have to be music. It could be art or food or, you know, I like people that are really like into it. They're not just passively observing. They're like yeah. really like processing what, what's going on and, and like being like, okay, how is this done? How can I do this? you know, and, and trying to really understand it on that kind of level. And I don't know, I guess that's something for me that I, it's the way I learn, I would say, is to do with doing, you know, it's to do mm -hmm. with being part of that, like, community and being participating, I guess you could use a word maybe that, that you could use, like, I like participating. And so I guess for me, listening is part is sort of like a, a form of participation, really, you know, yeah. like, if you're really deeply engaged, like, you've said, like, listening to Ben's music or whatever, then in a way you're absorbing those things. Whereas if you're just passively listening and just watching over you, it's not really like moving anything forward. So I don't really know where I learned it from, but I would definitely credit like my upbringing as a young kid with like the group group of friends that I had um, in grade school and, and high school, like influencing one another to um, check out different records. Thank you for checking out this episode. If you enjoy these conversations, please consider joining me on patreon.com slash pabloheld. My Patreon community helps me to pay for the running costs of this podcast and to develop it further into the future. There's two ways to join me there. The interview tier will give you access to lots of behind-the-scenes content. And also you get every episode before everybody else. So that's early access to episodes. The other option is the music lessons tier, which will give you everything from the interviews tier, plus two video lessons on different topics each month, lead sheets, so whenever I transcribe a new song, you'll get it first, you'll be invited to listening sessions, and much more. So these are two options for you to join me there. By doing that, you will be helping me to continue this podcast. So thank you, and let's get back to the episode. I was just thinking because I asked because um, I I love these little moments when I noticed my former teachers, uh, we, we would listen to music together and then they would point out like a little thing that I didn't pay attention to in terms of check out what the bassoon does. Totally. Like, 
the what? <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, or uh, or you would watch a movie with somebody who knows a lot about movies, and you're like, wasn't that a great line? Or did you see how how uh, how the whole room was lit? Uh, exactly. You know, and stuff like that, where people where you notice, oh, people pay attention on other levels than I'm used to. Totally. Or even on the or on the same, you know, that's oh they notice the same things. It's so important because it I think it these things reinforce one another and it and it leads you to just pay attention more. I guess I would just say that attention, I think in general, is just so important. Like it's in a way, it's like our you know, your most valuable resource really. And how you, you how you wield your attention is like crucial. And so I don't know, I just I like like exactly what you just said. I like hanging around people that show me different things to pay attention to that I might not have considered. And music, I've often said this that I'm like I I kind of find it weird that I, that music has become like my thing. It feels kind of weirdly peripheral, even though I spend like 16 hours a day, you know, doing it or whatever. <laughs> But mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't feel necessarily essential. Like like it could be something else. I feel like it just as well could be another art. It's just like I really like the attention and the focus and the craft. Like the fact that it's sound is almost secondary. Like I don't, it could be a yeah. thing. I feel like even. I, I think I'm. Uh, I would say the same. Actually, I I love music and I love doing it, but the. You know, if there's a a director that I really like, or you know, a comedian, I go as deep as I go when I check out Bird. You know, in a way, you know. Totally. It's just what what draws your attention, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and I think as I've noticed, I don't know. I started with music, and it, it's helped me learn other subjects. Like when I, like yeah. exactly what you just said, because you know, my wife is a uh, is a college professor, and we often she teaches literature, not music, but we often talk about this about how do you get kids, you know, into like learning about something if they're not already into it? Like how do you get how do you get how do you develop a passion in in someone who doesn't have it already. And I don't know, my my theory about it, and we've talked this to death, but my theory is that you have to connect it with something they're already passionate about. Like, everyone's passionate about something, right? Like, so, mm -hmm. you know, if if you're trying to teach, I, this may sound stupid, but it's like, if you're trying to, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to learn a new subject, I can draw on my passion for music and see how that process unfolded. Like, exactly what you said, you know, you check out one person, then you're like, well, Who was who influenced this person, and then you check out that, and then you kind of go backwards. So that's one approach. It's like a his, going backwards through history. So like you can do that with film. You could do that, like you said, with comedy. Yeah. You can do it with any any architecture, literature, painting, yeah. literature, whatever. And that gives you a sort of process to enter into this kind of like these other arts. And to me, I, but I feel like if I didn't get that through like that formal structure through music, I might not have been able to do it. Like I now, I feel like I can enter into almost any subject. I'm not going to be an expert, but I have a way to like kind of orient myself and then go and proceed. You know, it doesn't, it's not, um, I feel like, oh, I've done this before. I know how to yeah. do this, you know, and it just by through checking out records and it's the same process almost with any, anything, any content or whatever. Absolutely. Do you feel like um, when you have to spend also so much time listening to things that you're working on is there enough time for you to just enjoy music that you want to listen to no <laughs> no not at all no i mean it, it, i mean i wish i was saying this last night i was like 
talking to a friend I, I wish i just had like two months off to just listen to music for pleasure i i miss it because i used to do that so much more um yeah you just can't do it there's just not enough hours i i'm just working too much to to do it um but that's you know i mean that's a that's a good problem to have i guess you could say because i'm working on stuff i care about with and making new new art but i really love listening to music i mean that's why i'm why i got into this to, you know in a sense so but no, I mean, I, I'm always feeling behind, like I need to, I, there's just, I'm really obsessed with checking out new stuff whenever I can. Mm -hmm. But um, there's a different mindset, um, I guess, for a sound engineer to listen to music. Um, or maybe not, um, but I've talked to some engineers about this, where I have a hard time separating the music from the sound mm, same so some records i love and the sound if i would be honest <laughs> is shitty mm -hmm. but the music carries me through right um and uh and also like when you play yourself and you you, you have to listen to the playback of it mm. um I can't sometimes can separate the the notes and I'm still dealing with what I just played or was trying to play. I wasn't able to play, but I have to just see if the piano sound is right or if the, if the group sound is right, you know? Totally. They're all, it's all like very much interconnected. And I mean, that's kind of one of my, I guess you could say core beliefs is that, the, that these are not like necessarily separable into those kind of entities, like, like sound, versus music i mean i don't know like it's just part of a continuum and again back to attention it's like what are you paying attention to more you're playing or the mic position or i mean you can pay attention to one thing more but they're all part of your experience so mm. yeah i don't know i don't i um there are certain records i really like that sound shitty and i just love the music that much like what what are you thinking of right now bird stuff or you know stuff like that like just stuff that like the recording is not is not really the thing or certain classical records where i feel like i wish the i wish it was recorded better mm -hmm. i think the performance trans can possibly transcend that um to a degree but you know sometimes there's like a break-in period i don't know if you've ever noticed this like um i noticed this too when i'm mastering records like it's an interesting phenomenon but like if I listen to a record, if someone gives me a, you know, a new record and I put it on, I'm like, I kind of don't think it's really, it sounds overly bright to me or, or something, just something macro like that. Like not even musical, just sonic. I often find that, but if I really like the music, I keep listening to it over and over and over. And that like perception starts to kind of like go away in a sense. Like you adapt, you're, you're sort of adapt to that frequency spectrum and after a while um might just be psychoacoustic or something but i guess my point is that you know yeah it's not always clear to me that there's like something that is objectively good or bad it just has to like work in that moment and you know what I, you know what i'm saying sometimes i think there's a focus on in mastering engineers particularly like this focus on really looking at the numbers and like the numbers say this or they say that and i mean i think for me it's again it goes back to the oral perception thing like i think that's kind of mo most important because different, you know, a kind of dark or kind of bright record might just work for a certain music. And perhaps if I was in the studio and I had that record that I thought was bright and I made it darker, maybe I would have been like, actually, no, it's not as good. I like it. But, you know, so there might have been a reason for that. So mm -hmm. back to your thing, like it's not always separable. And sometimes your initial feeling about something may turn out to 
be be really uh like part of the music and part of why you like it even so you know mm. you have to sometimes reserve judge quick judgment on things and like just let yourself saturate in it a little bit before making those kind of calls at, at do you also know that phenomenon of um you record something you listen to the rough mix you decide on the takes yeah you listen to the takes for a long time you give it away for the mastering then you listen to the master approve the master listen again to the master 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 listen to it listen to it and after a while it comes out and all of a sudden when it's out you listen to it even in a different way because it it's it's becoming less and less yours yeah yeah and the and the perception of the music also becomes more and more the maybe the perception of somebody else you know well it's it's a control thing i mean it's a way of listening if i'm listening to something and i know i can move a knob or i can adjust anything right you're listening differently because you're listening with the idea that you can adjust it's like seasoning food it's like if you have the salt shaker in your hand and someone presents you a dish you're going to eat that dish differently you're going to be like well maybe it needs more salt like whereas if there's no salt shaker and it just here's the dish you know then you just eat it and you just you're not even thinking about salt you're just like oh this is good or it isn't so yeah totally i mean and i i try to there's this brings up an important thing i mean that's part of my own process i mean and my own music i often make part of the process just leaving the studio with the with the, the music because i feel like having that knob in front of me it's it's making me listen in a different way it's making me listen in a way of like what does this need What does this need? You know, and when you're in the car or something, when I I really love listening in the car. When I take a, a mix or, or a, an edit or something in the car, I don't listen like. Well, sometimes I do think, what does it need? But it's much less granular. It's much. It's more like, does this is this music even like working at all? It's like so macro. <laughs> it needs to be turned off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it needs to be deleted. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but I think that's so, so key, man. And like, I don't know, I also have a, you can't really see it, but you know, my monitor here, I have a, like any monitor, you could turn it, turn the monitor portion on and off. And oftentimes when I'm listening to mixes, I'll just turn the screen off. I don't want to, Yeah. I can't look at the, because when you look at the DAW, you might see something and then you're like, oh, it's wrong. There's something wrong. But if you're not looking at it, it sounds great and there's nothing wrong. Yeah. Um, But to me, yeah, when the record comes out, it's then you you can no longer turn any more dials. So then it's just like you just listen like everyone else. So it's, it's you know you let go of it. But I can't really listen to any work that I've done after I like after it's out. It's like really painful. Aha, uh -huh, interesting. Really, like almost at all. Like because I, of that control, uh, that loss of yeah, control or something. Probably it's probably something deeply wrong with me. I don't know, but no, I, I, uh, I just can't do it. It's just really like, it's just, it's too much. I, yeah, I just think oh, I would have changed this or I don't know, ah, shit, I wish this, or I wish that, or I don't know. It's, it's, it's probably something I could, I need to work on like per, uh, in my own like personal development or something. Cause it's like, it's like, I find that excruciatingly hard. Mm -hmm. to, like, so what's the last time you've listened to LP two? Oh, oh, I mean, whenever I mastered it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even like stuff as simple as like uploading it to Bandcamp to just like check that the file's correct. I'll just, I'll play the beginning of the file and be like, okay, yeah, it sounds fine. Just skip ahead. Like, I, I can't even like quality <laughs> control my own stuff. It's like, actually, there's probably 
the worst quality control of my own music because I just can't listen to it after a while. But I mean, you know, I, I assume by the point it's ready to be released, I've listened to it enough times that it's probably I've got everything out of there. But yeah, no, I don't even records I mix. I can't listen. I don't they're not like, you know, I don't it's not in my like iTunes library or anything. I can't if it comes on, I'll start. I'll, I'll kind of. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it is really interesting. And I think yeah. it does have something to do with, this is like a really fascinating topic. It does have something to do with the control. Cause I talk to friends sometimes like, you know, when you don't, when you, it's like recording to tape or if you record, you know, if, or for instance, like if you record live to two track or something and there's just no decisions to be made in a way, I feel like sometimes people enjoy those records of their own work the most where there was like an occasion and you just committed to the occasion and, and it was like, the parameters were defined by the occasion and it almost like takes this angst away because you're not like always thinking well what could i have done better it just like deletes that you're just like well that's what happened and then you can listen like a listener again you know you don't listen in that way of what could be changed so it's a it's it's a deep topic but it's like what you said is on point like it's a different way of listening when you're listening to the rough mixes and choosing takes you're not listening like a listener you're listening like should i keep this on the record or not and um or will this make on the will this make it on the record? Right. Yeah, it's a different. I think it's a way different way of listening. But mm -hmm. it also has to do yeah. with why I. This is another like little wormhole. But I think it's interesting. Like music critics, I always don't really understand how you can be a music critic without having made records. Like I find that really interesting because uh -huh. I don't. I think music criticism like kind of has to understand that point that you just made that listening like the way you listen to takes before you put out a record is way different than the way a critic listens to it and that's mm -hmm. a crucial part of the process like the fact that it may yeah. not exist you know what i mean a critic is always dealing with it after the fact it just exists as is and that's like the object but that's not my experience of it as a as an engineer or an artist it's always like everything's always in flux and the end product is really just kind of arbitrary i mean you know Yeah, that makes sense. Also, oftentimes they kind of have a limited amount of boxes um, at their disposal to put the music in. Mm. And usually that's what they do. They compare it to what they know mm -hmm. and see if it's better or worse in a way. And, uh, and then just oftentimes, I mean, they're good critics, of course, for sure but the the amount of of them is is limited well there's um, i have empathy for them there's they're doing it a lot of them for love of the music and there's not a lot of money in it and and i absolutely as if, running a record label I, I i mean i love the writers that want to write about the music so i'm not bashing anyone i just mean that i think it i just find it like i don't understand how i it's so alien to me yeah that way of listening to fixed historical entities it's just kind of like i i'm always thinking kind of in those terms of like the plastic nature of it like how it can be it could have been changed in a million different ways you know and and as yes. someone who's in the studio all day and listen i'm in a way i feel like i listen more with the dial in my hand than without the dial in my hand so it's almost like that's more natural to me it's actually more yeah. natural to listen to my own stuff without being able to change anything um so i don't know what that means but but the critic thing I think is interesting because it's, it's, um, you know, if you, if you've never played an instrument, if you've never tried to make art, if you've never tried to make something, I think you have a limited perspective on 
what a finished what a finished object even is you know yeah yeah oftentimes i and i also don't want to bash critics but oftentimes i feel like that just the general description of the music and the process that they think was the process is very boring and i would be so much more interested in mm. Uh, somebody who loves music, like a lo music lover, yeah. describes how he or she um, takes the music in and what it does to them or doesn't do to them. You know, just the emotional response. The subjective response of the world. Sub yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And then there there might be people who you trust more as a, as a reader, you know. Oh, I like those kinds of emotional responses. Or I like uh, their taste in music, you know. Definitely. But just, just a general description of, oh, a lot of snare rolls, yeah. <laughs> you know, just it's like, who, ne who needs this? Right. You know? Well, that's already in the music. So we don't, we don't, yeah. Yeah, we don't need that description. Yeah. yeah very fair. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me what, what the process is for LP1 and LP2? Uh, how you guys put the music together in general? And we can also go into details about certain songs. Cool. Um, yeah, so those two records were, you know, were made with myself and Theo Blackman on voice and myself on electronics uh, in Fender Rhodes mainly. Um, basically, they're kind of two companion records um, that were made. They began both at the same time, like in 2019. And we we were just intending, Theo and I had been working together for about a year or two. Um, I met him, I believe, through working with Ben. I'd always been a huge fan of his work, but I think we started working together because I had be begun doing this um, online journal. It was on SoundCloud. It was like a sound journal, um, more or less just sort of documenting different electronics ideas that I was working on at the time. And I was explicitly trying to kind of get out of this idea of like finishing works. I was like, let me just try to make some sounds every few days and post them on SoundCloud and just describe how I made them. So it was like, here's Fender Rhodes, you know, couple loops through these pedals and processed in this way. And so, and I'd had like, you know, dozens of these I was posting. So Theo found them, I guess, at some point. And, you know, he messaged me and was like, man, these are great. You know, this is amazing. You know, we should, we should jam or something like that. And I was like, well, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's try it. So we started kind of playing together 2018 and then Around that time, I was also kind of deciding on uh, starting a record label, which I had kind of made the, had the intention of doing for about five years. And so I thought, well, maybe this is a good opportunity to start the label and kind of put this out as the first release. But but there was no music. There was nothing uh, written or there wasn't even really a concept. I just felt like we'd been improvising really well together. And I thought that it could form the basis of something. So we went in to my studio and just improvised for two days um 2018 and that material more or less most of that uh material uh, made it onto lp1 or, or sorry the material from lp1 was called from that material it wasn't obviously two days long record but uh yeah you know and the editing process is something that i definitely spend a lot of time on that's kind of maybe i took the reins more on that one on lp1 because you know theo was busier and i just kind of was sort of had an idea of sort of how it could sound and it was going to be on my label. So I sort of edited it, took my time, really found the best stuff that I really thought worked, kind of 
compiled the best chunks and put it together. So it was more of like a really strictly improvised record. Um, process wise, I mean, one thing we're both doing is a lot of looping. So although it is like live, there's a lot of layers. And for me personally, I've gotten really deep into like the compositional uh, implications of looping. And so I kind of build my own loopers. I built my own looping system in a program called Max MSP, which is a software environment where you can basically program your own DSP functions. So all the looping that's done on both LP1 and LP2 is is running on my own custom like software patches, basically allowing asynchronous loops. So multiple loops running out of sync with one another. They could also be in sync, but I mostly keep them in various lengths. So it, you know, and then each loop can kind of be um, messed with on the fly as far as filtering and effects and stuff like that. So it gives you, for me, it gives me a lot of flexibility to develop these kind of long form improvisations that are really textural in nature. Um, and I guess it was sort of explicitly in developing that I was trying to bridge the gap between like live performance and what I do in the studio, which is like twisting knobs. And I was like, well, if that's such a big part of how I make sound, like how can I do this live and how can I make that commit this like in real time as part of my sound, you know, performance practice or whatever. So yeah, that's sort of how LP one came about. We recorded and edited. And then the second record, which is out, I think next week, finally basically came about, um, there was some, there was like one leftover piece that didn't make it onto the first one that I thought was really good but it just didn't really work in the sequence. And again, I was pretty, I didn't want it to be a really long record. I wanted it to be kind of compact and short and just the best bit. So there's like this leftover thing. And I thought to myself at the time, well, there's this one leftover thing. What if we just made like a sequel and, you know, use that as the first track of the sequel. So there was kind of this idea that there would be a second one, but it just took a while uh, COVID hit and, uh, we went on hiatus so it just took a few years to happen but we finally went back and and used that uh one track as the opening track of lp2 and then uh built around that the rest of the record with more improvising and um but you know on lp2 there was some also some more composed i guess ideas and orchestration ideas so it was a little less um purist in the improv kind of sense was there also overdubs on LP1 or was it everything more or less live? I mean, there might have been like one or two small little things, I think, but it wasn't like anything particularly important. You know what I mean? Interesting, because there seems to be so much happening at the same time. and, and That's the looping, things... you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I also have like... Um... These things, these... Um set recorders so i had like two of those going on their own you know loop channel so i'm like i'm like sampling in as as we're playing like whatever's coming out of the speakers i can record it onto a cassette and have two of those playing so you can get like i mean i could get a million so what, what happens then it comes into the cassette recorder and then and then i have a, a stereo out or you know like a cable out that'll just go into the mixer or in that case would go into the recording system yeah it's like i mean i could do it right now but it's i made a Basically, these are like loop tapes, so like you can cut your own, you can just take a cassette and, and cut it so that it loops. So basically, it's like, a, this one's a, I don't know, I think it says 20 second. So like, you know, 
you can make 10 second, five second, whatever. So can you play it now? I know you can. Can you play it? Yeah. yeah. Can you can you show what's on it right now? I think this was from a session the other day. I don't know. <laughs> I can hear it. Oh, you can't? I mean, it just sounds super lo-fi and crappy and whatever. So, yeah, there's ways of getting lots of stuff going on. And the looping system that I have is also, I'm able to sample like what Theo's doing uh, as yeah. well. So I'm cutting up what he's playing and, and processing that. And um, yeah, anyway, I mean, I could go into more detail if it's interesting, but the upshot. Yeah, it is interesting. Please go. Okay. <laughs> well, Please go ahead. Okay. So this guy, um, this, I mean, this is, this is called a monom grid. It's like a um, controller device. This is sort of what is like the hub that I use the, the central part of my looping program. And what this is, is basically, it doesn't do anything. It's just a bank of buttons that when you press them, it just sends a message to the computer that you could do anything with. So you can mm -hmm. think of it as like a row of toggles sort of, but the way I have it, and, and also the, the buttons light up. You, you can also send a message to the device to light up. So I've seen it in your videos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, also the cassette thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the idea with it is like what I built is that each row, um, like, you know, across basically represents one loop. And so you can kind of visually, like I made it so that you can visually see almost like a playhead that's going across and then it will. And then if you, if I push in any two buttons in that row, it will define like sub loops. Right. So like, if this if this row represents um you know say a 10 second loop then like if i push these two buttons it will take the second half of the loop and then if i push you know, yeah. these two you know this will be like a stuttery kind of effect sort of or like a really short loop and then I can but also... in, in your videos i've i've haven't really seen you touch that thing oh it yeah. just it let oh, up uh, yeah no well i mean own. yeah that's that i probably just kind of left my hands out of the video but yeah when once you get it like an interesting because so like the first four you know you can have one is you could also be sampling the same material so like the first four could have like the same source material but they're all looping different portions of it so you get these like crazy phasing kind of effects um that kind of thing and then you know there's I mean, function, just simple stuff that's like really functional and just useful, like half speed, double speed, reverse. Those are all like like one finger gestures. It's pretty intuitive. The other mm. thing I made, which I think is also pretty pretty slick, because I do say so, is like a pattern recorder. So I can hold this button and then do a bunch of stuff and then hit it again, and it will play back the gestures that I did. So that gets that's some of the stuff like on LP1 that you're hearing where it will be like, a lot of stuff gets in play and then it's moving. So I guess one part of the trickery is like, if I, when I edited the record, like I kind of, I tended to not in all cases, but edit out the sort of build up the whole, like setting things up. Yeah. And, and it's just, you just are in the big forest of like yeah. a million sounds. So it sounds super overdubbed, but it's not, it's just like, we're just popping into the improv like 10 minutes in or something. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so that's that's that. Um, maybe as a quick detour, um, I I'm very uh, untalented, not talented, or or um, how do you say? Like also, I don't have the patience to read a manual or to watch a tutorial. 
I love sounds like that and music which gets sounds like that, you know. I also love synths and, you know, everything, but I don't have the patience built in me to actually go deep and become an expert of one of those things even. So whenever I play synths, it's like, I hope this works, you know, or I just pick the sounds that I like, the patches that I like, yeah, and stick to them. And I'm even scared to turn a knob, you know. Uh, so, um, and I always have to think of, um, but I love the the act of creation and being, you know, and being being um, spontaneous and just doing music mm-hmm. with the instrument that is in front of me. Um, and I always have to think of that. Um, that scene in the first Matrix movie, where um, I think uh, Keanu Reeves is about to fight the first opponent. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, shit, that guy is great in that sort of martial arts. Can you send me the <laughs> the software yeah. so I can learn it real quick? And yeah, then yeah. it's like, and then he gets it and he knows it. And then he can be, you know, he right. can be Neo. You know? Right, right. <laughs> Sometimes I wish for stuff like that <laughs> because I, I just don't have it in me, you know. Uh, well, to, it's like anything else. Through... It's like a, it's like it's the same way that I don't have it in me to practice piano. I mean, that's why I yeah. why I sound terrible. So <laughs> it's, it's I mean, you know, I everyone has their aptitudes and the things that they can that they that's not true. even aptitudes, but just like things that you are drawn into naturally. I mean, given multiple lifetimes, I'm sure we would all do everything, but it's like you know you have to your priorities at some point but i'm kind of the that was actually, i love i love manuals and i love i love the yeah. the nerdy i love that stuff so that's just more of like an app uh, or like a proclivity or something i guess you could say that was actually my big build up to the question that i was about to ask like how do you what's your process of understanding new gear making stuff with it you know like i was saying that 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 sound journal thing was a you know you could look that up i don't know i think some of it still exists that was maybe back in 2017 uh just just trying to make something musical with it i guess because it's oftentimes you see demos of this gear online and it doesn't it's like okay this is cool but it doesn't not really musically what i want to do with it so i kind of have to buy it and then be like does this do does this do anything i can that I like or, or not. And, or is it just a novelty? And if it's not, if it's something I can use, then I often, yeah, just explore it. Like you would explore any instrument, you know, you got to think of it like an instrument. If you think of it like that, then it's like, you know, the same way you practice voice leading or scales or, you know, paradiddles, you know, you just practice, you just learn how the thing works and you, and you get into the details of how it works. All that being said, I, I think, um, my background in college was I studied electronic, uh, well, more or less like computer music, you know, and so the ethos there, a lot of it, especially when I came up, was uh, building your own instruments, digital or analog instruments. So oftentimes, uh, I use gear that I buy as a sort of like inspiration for things that I will then go and then build out more in depth, like, for instance, that looper. So I, I over the years, I've probably owned every looper ever made like four times like bought and sold them and they all do something really specific that i like and don't like but you know then at some point i have to say well none of them do exactly what i want so i just have to just build this damn thing so then i just, I just coded it you know 
Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the, so I have friends that don't know how to code and, and do anything like that. And so it's, it's, it's a bit, you know, they kind of just learn whatever the parameters are of that piece of gear, that looper pedal, like Theo, he just has a couple of electro harmonics loopers and he just knows the hell out of those things and knows how to get everything he can out of it. Or, you know, Ben with his like couple effects pedals that he knows really well. And I think that's like you were saying about, you know, I don't want to touch any knobs. I, don't, I think that's perfectly valid. If you can get something musical, like there's certain pieces of gear that I, they only just do one thing in my studio and I don't touch them. And I just like that one thing. And I think that's cool too. You don't have, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, if the piece of gear does one cool thing that, that you just really love and you don't ever want to touch the knobs, I mean, that could be valid. It's mm-hmm. a matter of like, is it making sounds that you can use? And if it is, then you should keep it or, you know, or let it inspire you to go down that path. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you talked about your piano playing, and I love your piano playing. Uh, also, you know, um, I was super impressed, of course, by the the Feldman, but also uh, the way you played uh, Ben's Oceana on on Rhodes. Right. Okay. And on right. The synth, man, that was incredible. Oh, really, really incredible. I also saw the Tim Miller uh, solo transcription that you did, but the the Oceana is like what I was mostly uh, um, struck by was the like you have a very economic way of playing the piano. Like there's hmm. no wasted movement at all. Interesting. I I'm glad to hear that, but I don't know what why that would be because I don't really have any. <laughs> really formal technical training i mean it's just totally homegrown so i I, it's interesting yeah i don't know that's that is interesting i don't i really wish i was a better piano player again back to the thing of like the limited hours like if i could kind of do anything it'd probably be like listening to music and practicing piano i Mm -hmm. love the piano i think it's i think it's the greatest instrument i mean to me i really just love it but yeah i mean it's just it i almost feel like i came to it too late because i started when i was um 16 or 17 mm-hmm. and so i just i only have enough chops to like do something you know that i wanted like I, like that ben thing that was just will to just like i just want to know how this harmony works so i just figured it out and and as in the course of it i was like oh i guess i can kind of play this now so in that <laughs> video yeah but it was not like i'm not like you know i can't my vocabulary is is limited to these islands of knowledge Mm-hmm. Not like I have, you know, I, I can't like, a, you know, it's very specific. So, but I've always thought, you know, at some point I'd love to like make a piano record or, or do something, mm-hmm. like that. but it's, it's, you know, it's, I think I'd have to really approach that in a serious way. And it would take a lot of preparation and, and I'd have to dedicate myself more to that. So maybe someday, but at the moment it's more of an, you know, just like a, an offshoot or an oddity, an oddity in my thing, but I, I love it. Like the thing I like about the roads, I guess, in particular, is I can kind of have those harmonic things that are in my hands from the piano, but I can also access the sound part of things. So yeah. it's like, but it's like what I really want. It's almost like I use the roads more like a MIDI controller. Like, I mean, I'm obviously using the road sound, but like, it's almost like just generating tones that I can then use. Big inspiration for that. I, I should also mention is, do you know, um, Joseph, uh, Dumoulin, the Fender? Road? Yeah. We of course, have a, yeah. Yeah, we have a record. I'm working right now, uh, like later this afternoon, editing this record that we made together with two Rhodes 
and both effects and stuff but he was you know a big inspiration like early on to like for that because it was like i heard his records and i was like oh like yeah that it's like the extended harmony stuff yeah and this it's like electronic and and mediated and doing all the sonic stuff that i love but it's improvisatory but it's also like i could tell that he's like checked out maybe some ben stuff and some feldman stuff and it was like really the harmony was really like what i like and so that was huge inspiration so this record that i'm making now with him it's kind of like going full circle because like we're, i'm able to sort of like access like some of that stuff too but anyway that's all to say that Great. my piano playing i think is fairly woeful but uh <laughs> i'm able to like use it to get somewhere you know that i want to go <laughs> yeah it really looked i mean it really looked amazing to me I, um and also um and I'm, i'm not trying to say this in a condescending way but like un unorthodox like self like self-taught yeah. but therefore you get into like like a like a uh and i feel connected to that because also like a lot of my teachers early on tried to show me like exercises and i never really did it so i kind of found my own way to mm. get around the piano um um but the thing the unorthodox thing that i noticed is like maybe somebody who would be classically trained or trained in another way would go other directions like sometimes you would change the hand and i was like why is he doing that of course yeah it totally makes sense oh, <laughs> it's great you know yeah. sometimes there was a descending thing and i, I would see you change hands to to be able to play the line uh -huh. you know and but it didn't really look so pianistic in a way or or so you know piano player like totally not yeah yeah not but it totally made sense like uh, and uh i loved it you know i love these moments man yeah. that's that's really cool i i i've never had anyone compliment my piano technique so i <laughs> but um yeah man i mean i would like to study with you maybe i could actually learn how to play the instrument but a little bit but i i um yeah just again just trying to find something that will get me the, the destination and sometimes that means you know just figuring out a way to do it i don't you know yeah um and ben's music like that piece of ben's that i learned on roads i mean it's not written for roads written for guitar so there were moments that really like don't make any sense about Yes, I just have to figure out a way to do it. And so I don't know, maybe there's probably a more, it might be a more efficient way, but it worked and it sustained the voices that I needed to be sustained. And so it was, yeah. fun, you know, but um, no, I love the, I, I, I don't have a piano and that's a big part of it too. Like I think actually being on an acoustic piano, there's something like so magical and special about that for me, as opposed to a Rhodes or a keyboard. I mean, I love electronic instruments, but the acoustic piano, I feel like is, in a way it's like the way i the way i hear music i had a, a piano growing up as a kid in my house i never took lessons but it was in our living room and i just would just every day play on it you know just mm. figuring out theory and harmony and you know mucking my way around but it's like i feel very connected to that sound and instrument so although i don't have like the background or the training it's like i like i don't know spiritually connected with it or something yeah yeah makes sense What did studying Oceana tell you about Ben and and music in general? I mean, you know, motivic 
development, I guess, in that piece, just transforming a cell is a big part of that piece and just taking something. I mean, at the time, so I didn't mention this, but one back, my background with Ben and sort of like how we came to work together is like I said, I found his music in high school and I guess I just randomly, I was like one of his fan people who just emailed him and was like, Hey, I'm 16 and I really like your music, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we were kind of like in touch. And then I think when I was in college, I asked him if I could like study with him sort of. So we kind of, I would you know go to his apartment and he would show me compositions he was working on. And I think Oceana was one of them. Maybe I was 18 or 19. And, uh, you know, he showed me the chart. This was before it was recorded. I think I had heard it played live once. And I asked him about it and he said, well, you know, you can come over and I'll show you the chart. So I knew that I knew a little bit about it through asking him questions. And I think maybe that was one of the first times, like when I really started to think in these large scale ways of transforming things motivically and taking a small set of information and, and expanding it into a really large piece. I can't, I mean, I get, you know, I, I musically was really in touch with his music, but I formally never really understood that device. So I guess that piece taught me a bit about that, about how you can have an economy of material and get a lot of different yeah. kind of sounds from it and textures and, and, just, um, and go on a formal journey with it. You know, I would say in a way, there's other pieces of his that are probably more influential on my thinking, like uh, stuff from the excavation record. Um, is really, My favorite one. Yeah, that's probably my favorite one. Um, but, you know, that Oceana, and I've learned a bunch of the stuff off of excavation at times, um, but I never like recorded or anything, but just for my own knowledge. So I guess, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, again, getting it in your hands. I, I like seeing how it works I, I like hearing the harmonic vertical effects and just knowing what it is yeah um, and yeah so a lot of it was just that like oh man what, what is that and it's just you know my ears were open but my hands needed to like follow to see what it was so something like that and i think you know even now when i improvise probably all that stuff is like somewhere in there and in, in my hands and in my ears mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> getting back to lp uh two I already told you my, my favorite song is the last one. And I always go back to it. I, of course, I also, you know, just loop the record. But uh, the, the last song is what what maybe I connect the most to or I don't know. Uh, it's also you can't plan that, you know, it just it just happens like that. Um, it's interesting what you gravitate towards. Yeah. Um, I made a sheet, just a rough sheet, but uh, <laughs> That was my idea of what the song is, but I'm very, very curious. Um, uh, yeah, that looks that looks about right. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if there's some chords missing. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a there's again there's a bit of a looping structure that's that expands towards the end. But yeah, that, that's the, exact, that's the exactly. basis. Yeah, that's the basis. Oh yeah, because sometimes I felt like there was there was a chord here in the middle or something. That... Yeah, it, it gets it, it, it's not all actually written out. Some of that is from um, editing, like but that that sheet that you have is is the kind of I think the core of it. And then I did some stuff where I like transposed it or took out a chord. Stick, so it, yeah, stuff like that. It made it very hard for me to uh, yeah, say, I could goddamn <laughs> Joseph. You know uh, how am I supposed to make a sheet out of this? Oh, that's um, amazing, man. 
but also like but does the loop start the melody loop does it start on the b flat for you i guess it's hard to say i don't know i guess i could hear it on the b flat or the d maybe i don't know yeah, i have to go back yeah. and look at it but uh, the chord symbols are interesting yeah, that was a quick one. Just so uh... the other thing I should mention that I think is part of the um, this piece you're talking about. I, I I don't know if I said this when we were emailing, but it was one that I considered multiple times leaving off the record. Yeah, because I feel like it's the most different thing. Although it's maybe like the most unique thing. It's like it was so different from everything else that I was like, I don't know how this really fits in. But I think sequencing it as the last track was kind of my solution to it. Was just like okay you know, it goes in a sort of darker, different direction here and, and kind of ends on it on this different note. But um, that, I think structurally why it works, which is interesting, is going back to this asynchronous looping idea. So the baseline and the melody are in one loop, right? And they're together, but the chords are actually not connected in length. So the, yeah. the inner voices of the chords are falling on different bass note and melody notes throughout. And that's, I think, what makes it feel like you, your ear eventually like catches the pattern and knows where the next melodic or bass note is going to go. But it's always with a sort of different, like slightly yes. different like emphasis because the harmony is shifting. I don't exactly, it wasn't even really written out. I think that what came about improvised, I just improvised the two loops. One was a bass note and a melody and one was a set of like five chords or whatever. And it just, I just had them on the, on the looper and it was like, this is cool. And I just recorded it in. This was not even, this was not even live. This was just like at home. I did that. I just had it and I keep little fragments like that. Like, Oh, this is cool. And then when Theo was over and we were recording, I said, well, I have this little, you know, we were kind of like, all right, we've improvised a lot what else do you want to do? I was like, I have this little thing. It's like, you know, these chords. And I basically just wrote out that I just wrote out, like, here's the, the outline of it. And then he just learned the part. So that was one where it was cool. Cause it was like, it wasn't no longer, it was an improvised basis. Like the initial thing that I did was completely improvised, but then he learned all the parts and then we improv and then we improvised over it. So I had those loops were going and then I had other electronics going over it. So it was sort of like almost, we took that as a backing track in a way, and then we improvised over it. Um, but I think, you know, that's something I'm really interested in maybe looking into more in the future, like taking things that have that loose improv feeling, but then being able to orchestrate an overdub over them. I think it creates this really natural effect that also just feels kind of inevitable or something. I, don't, I really like it. Um, can you maybe, I don't know if you can relate to this, but, um, to me, the last track of this album and the last track of the previous album yes. also connect very well to with each other. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned. So what? Yeah, I'm but, glad. But you... what you said before is like, you for you that was a song that kind of is a little bit out of place. For me, it connects directly to the album before. That's and great. also in, and also um, combines a, a lot of things that are happening throughout those albums. Well, that's, man, I mean, again, I just thank you for listening on that, that level. Cause I think that's, yeah, very much intentional connection back to the first one, as far as the ending, mm -hmm. ending on this sort of more subterranean, darker note, I think, 
I don't, I can't quite put my finger on it, but something that was a tension within these albums, both of them with Theo was both of us, I think can go into more adventurous realms harmonically and texturally and sonically. And I think there was a sort of intent to kind of keep things a bit more in a certain space. And it is largely a tonal space and a largely a kind of like, you know, something kind of, that doesn't really deviate too much from a sort of generally like diatonic space. Although there's like extensions and stuff going on, it, it, it kind of lives mostly in that world. But I think those pieces kind of, yeah, hopefully like stretch the ear a little bit at the end to, you know, kind of almost have this ascendant or descending effect away from the more tonal stuff. So that's, that is kind of, I guess, maybe the way I was hearing it too, that, that the end of both records sort of has a similar kind of effect. Um, but it's tricky because it's like, yeah, I feel like I could make a whole record with Theo of just stuff like that that has more of those kind of harmonic colors and stuff. And that's super interesting. But I do feel it's, you know, one thing I'm, I guess that takes me a while, even though these are improvised records, the reason they take a while often is, like I mentioned, the editing. I do think a lot about like what to present and what not to present. Like, because in a way, when Theo and I play live, I mean, we've had sets that are like just, you know, like really like noisy abrasive and we've had stuff that's just super quiet and just like two or three notes and you know and we've gone in so many different directions but i do think it's for me important to have the records kind of really have an intentionality behind them and to have a snapshot and a sort of very specific space that they live in and every deviation from that is like a lot of intention behind it so i think that's kind of why you know even though it's improvised i really do always try to find things that I don't want to say tell a story, but they put the music in its own unique sonic space where it's not just, you know, another improv record. Because again, our live gigs sound really sometimes nothing like these records. They're kind of like made to be that specific uh, sound or whatever. Mm. That's a that's another thing that I'm interested in. It's like um, when I do a record, I have a... I have a fast piece, I have a slower piece, you know, I have different meters, whatever, you know, just general variety in, in, in things. But with this kind of music, there's obviously so much variety in there, but the overall gesture is, uh, is to me, these songs fold into one in, in a way. I'm, I'm staying the same right. vibe in a way. I'm wandering through different realms yes but in a way these albums are also like one piece for me yeah, you know that's again part of it yeah but yeah my question is sequencing like how do you put together a record like that where you listen to various moods uh, can you go into detail about that yeah it's one of the yeah again it's one of the aspects of record making that i think is not like we talked about before things that are talked about and not talked about like sequencing records is so important it's so important really like i i'm obsessed with it and um i spend a lot of time on it i spend a lot of time on it um i don't know what else to say i i try i obsess and i try many different things i mean I, you know i don't want to sound too tortured but i really do spend a lot of time on 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 the sequencing i think it's um the order in which you present the ideas is sort of crucial. I mean, even if it's the same material presented in a different order, they have different effects, different things reference 
other things differently. And I don't know, the temporal order of the way things are presented is like crucial. So yeah, I mean, sometimes with there'll be a clear thing like, okay, I know like with LP2, I knew I wanted to start with the piece that it started with. That was sort of the only cornerstone. So sometimes there'll be cornerstones. Like I know this starts it and I know this ends it, or I know this is the beginning of side B, but oftentimes it's, yeah, the difference between what makes it and what doesn't make it is what works in the sequence almost more than like what I like as an individual piece. Like sometimes like sometimes pieces that are my favorite pieces, I just obsessed to try to find a way to get them in and they just, it's just, I can't do it and I can't do it. Yeah. I can't do it. And I'll maybe sit on that for six months trying to like think about how to do it. And it just can't, it can't get it in. And so I lose it. And those end up becoming like these casualties to the process of like sequencing. And I don't know, but I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of artists are like this. Although I will say though, that, you know, I do think sometimes people rush that a little bit too much. I notice as a producer and as an engineer, um, it's sometimes really challenging for me when I'm mixing a record to not know the order. I know it sounds weird, mm-hmm. but like sometimes I never basically know the order of other people's music when I'm mixing it. It's just a bunch of tracks. And I don't know. I mean, I wish I did sometimes. And I know sometimes you figure that out later, but sometimes people are very clear. They're like, the record starts with this one. This is the end. This is the, and I love that because it lets me kind of have a sense of like where we are in the journey. Um, yeah. I think that it affects everything. It affects affects the sound. It affects different, you know, different things I might do as a mixing engineer. I think it all, again, it all it, it integrates. So anyway, that's a long answer, but it's all just to say that sequencing is, I think, crucial and something I spend an inordinate amount of effort on. And I yeah. hope that it actually makes a difference. <laughs> like you also have like several sequences that you have lying around in your library yes to yeah sequence 9.1 sequence yeah. 9.2 sequence 10.3 a remove yeah. you know 20 seconds from track four sequence yeah sequence 11.1 revert to sequence seven but add you know blah blah like yes like i'm i do that a lot and in a way it's like that's kind of what holds it up a lot of times like whether what stuff coming out it's like the music's done i'm just trying to figure out like and that too about like take removing time with improvised stuff i know some people are like it's like it was improvised and that's sort of like canonical and we can't touch it i'm not really like that i just i have it has to work and um if if it's lagging in a certain point and i notice that multiple times in a row when i'm out in the car i'm listening to it on my you know, headphones out of the studio. If I notice that same thing multiple times, I'll, I'll just not hesitate to cut a minute of the improv and be, or two minutes or whatever. It's just, just snip it out and, and find a way to patch it. So that's mm-hmm. kind of part of sequencing too, I guess, in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes hard to let the favorite bits go or the favorite pieces go, but sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. Um, did you also listen to that um, uh, Theo Blackman album? Uh, what's it called? The, the solo one from early 2000s. Maybe, is it Anteroom? Or... Anteroom, yeah. Well, Anteroom, yeah, I listened to that. I had that one. Origami, I think, was maybe more influential for me. Yeah. Okay, I see. That one? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I have That's Anteroom. the one with uh, I Remember You. Yeah, exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. With um, Schooly on bass and john holland yeah and matt moran i always uh listened to to that uh, an den kleinen radio apparat 
It was uh, one of my favorites from that record. I told this to Theo recently, but I have a, just an amazing memory of just getting really stoned at my <laughs> my friend's house in high school, listening to that record, and it was just like one of the peak musical experiences of my life. So uh, yeah, it's so good. It's a great yeah freaking record. Somehow your duo albums made me think of the Anteroom album somehow. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, I, I didn't. To be totally honest, I didn't really spend a ton of time. I mean, I, I heard it once or twice, but it, it wasn't like Origami was the one that I spent more time with. But that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, Anteroom is. I could see how that relates to what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, when you play music like this, I don't. Um, I don't remember where I heard this term, but it really stuck to me, stuck with me. It's like finding your quiet place mm. what's your what's your quiet place right mm. and i feel like being able to play music like that or music like the 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 feldman piece you really have to be in touch with whatever your quiet place is mm. i mean yeah it's interesting i don't i don't know actually i don't know if i agree i mean i I definitely see what you mean, but I don't know if I don't know if I experienced that. You know, the process of making although it's quiet music, the process of making it is kind of in contradiction to that. Even with Feldman, you know, it's like that's a great example. Like that piano with shrink tip, he's like, yeah, I mean, the surface of it is a quiet meditative surface but when you're trying to perform it i mean you're basically counting the entire time like these ridiculous meters mm -hmm. so the experience of uh executing it is um oftentimes very strenuous and mm -hmm. i feel that way too with these records with theo that like you know while the while i guess you could hear them and think well there's not much to that it's just some long droney reverb sound. i mean there's a lot of not that you're saying that, but I mean, like one, I understand that perspective on it, but it's like, it's not how I experience it. I'm really, it's a, you know, I, I, it's very active. I'm very active in the shaping of it and stuff like that. So, although, you know, like, and in, in fact, I would even go so far to say like certain ambient music that gets into this kind of like, you know, Spotify put you to sleep list. Like I kind of <laughs> don't really, I kind of don't really love that. No, 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 me neither. And um, the thing is, I haven't really understood what that person meant by the quiet place, but some, for some reason, it resonated with me. Um, maybe I connect the, the quiet place more um, with the absence of um, impatience. Mm. You know, and that's something that I, I struggle with that. Um, I want to know what the next thing is. I want to know, you know, I want to get to uh, the next, I want to build to the next thing. And I feel like when I listen to this music, it it kind of uh, takes away that wish to get somewhere else, to get somewhere else, because you're more about, mm. or I feel like I when I listen to it, I'm more, centered in the moment and i don't want to i don't want to find out what the next moment is i just experience this moment and that mm. some, somehow for me that's the quiet place i don't know no that's that's beautiful man I, I i like that a lot i um yeah i think when i listen to the best kind of more ambient music or whatever we want to provisional term we want to use uh 
does that. Yeah, it, it slows down time and lets you experience, yeah, exactly the lack of wanting to go anywhere else. You just like are happy to stay in that that zone and it does so it does that's it, what i meant yeah it does kind of change your perception of uh yeah of, of time you have time for sure and i guess with feldman I, I i guess that's something huge that i take from his work is it's almost like ritualistic in that sense actually this is one anecdote you'll appreciate with the um the celebration that ben and i did for the this is a good hydra anecdote um when we finished <laughs> that record uh, after we mastered it, our, our celebration for like three years of work was we listened to, we went to Ben's apartment and got a bunch of beers and listened to the six hour Feldman string quartet. <laughs> uh, just silence for six hours. That was pretty great. But I, I think there's a ritual component to it too. That's great. Where it's like, yeah, like we're not trying to do anything. We're just trying to like be here with the sounds and listen and listen. And I, I love that. It's a different, but you know, I also, man, I, I love I love so much kind of music, you know, so many different kinds of music. And again, it comes back to this thing about like what's needed for that project. And almost what we were talking about going way back to the beginning about producing, it's like, I think it's not a universally valid principle that music has to develop in a Feldman y way. Like there are certain people that base their whole life on that. Like I can totally see other, many other valid ways of making. Yeah music and those are all great but i do think there is some truth to what you're saying that like certain kinds of music almost have a kind of philosophical or narrative or lack of narrative or something or, or they're just structurally structured in a different way it's not the traditional arc of like you know intro beginning and then it, you you development and all this it's like you just are sort of in a zo a static zone and you just kind of it's almost more spatial, right? I do think that sometimes, like, I, I really love visual art, and I think sometimes part of what I like about ambient, more like longer forms and static forms, is the fact that it becomes more spatial rather than temporal. Because, yeah. like, the temporal, the distance temporally from like point A to point B maybe is not that large. It kind of like goes more into a subjective spatial thing where you don't necessarily get that when you're just being like, when you're going through a tradition, you know, in like a sonata allegro form or something where you're like being shuttled from one point to another point like you don't really have that time to be spatial you're kind of you're being grabbed by the hand and pulled there's this like almost you know there's this feeling of uh of manipulation almost like you you're being pulled through the the hall of mirrors and i think that's beautiful too again i'm not i but it's a different feeling of just that thing of being in a a unified like spatial place or whatever what I'm wondering now is like, I guess my music, the music that I'm involved with has more of that, you know, okay, let's get through this, yeah. uh, this thing. But I want to have, I would like to get closer to that quiet placey thing. Yeah. When I experience music like yours, you know, and have that kind of mindset, even though I'm playing through right. lots of changes and lots of rhythmic thing you know and i'm wondering how to get closer to that how to maintain or to to cultivate that um that feeling in in different kind of music it's interesting because i feel like we're maybe both approaching it from we're approaching the same intent but from different sides of it because i almost feel like with these records with theo i'm almost trying to do the opposite thing i'm trying to imbue a static form like more ambient kind of 
sound arty kind of music with a sort of narrative pulse like what we were talking about with the sequencing and how you're flowing through it it, it yeah well, i agree that like yeah generally each piece is sort of like within a constrained like space i do think that there's gesture to it there's 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 narrative shape and there's line to it and, and there's different things that you don't oh, yeah. experience and say like a brian eno piece or you know a brian eno piece is it's just a snapshot of an environment that's you know that's not what my music is I, or this music that theo is i don't think i think it's more handcrafted and it is sort of pulling you through a little bit yeah but it's but it's more like i feel like what you're saying is you you know you're coming at it from the other way but i think it's i personally find that my favorite kinds of static music are ones that are informed by the more narrative traditions like that they have that those kind of mechanisms at their disposal and um and vice versa you know i think that they're both like valid devices and so like it's it's helpful to have both mm -hmm. zones or whatever absolutely yeah um i'm interested also in um like a maybe you can have a since you are also a musician a great musician uh and also a great um sound engineer um I think from both sides, sometimes engineers and musicians are frustrated with with each other um, when it comes to talking with each other and expressing what you're, especially what the mu musicians like. Sometimes we we are having a trouble. We're having trouble exp expressing what we want, you know, because we lack maybe the the um, technical understanding of what what uh, generates a sound or whatever you know um and i'm wondering what your advice is for musicians and maybe also for engineers in terms of and we talked already about you know being empathetic and listening but still like how can we express better what we want buy a mic so that <laughs> you know buy a microphone record yourself move it around know what or yeah know, i mean not to cut you off but like that's one thing like get your hands for musicians like get your hands dirty yeah it's not all on the engineer to do everything like we're not mind readers like if you have mics that you like just tell me i don't need to like reinvent the wheel i i feel that sometimes there's this obfuscation on both sides about just if you have a strong preference some some artists will just say i like this mic cool you know what i mean i think that's good it's good to know your preferences but i guess the more generalized principle is just yeah like back to the empathy thing but it's it's more than empathy it's like do your homework a little bit and i think homework for musicians is like don't you know engineer and musician are equally creating the sound you're both helping one another to it. and the engineer is there ideally to help you get the best possible result right so and most musicians totally get this and and it's the, the dynamic is great but i you know i have also experienced that thing where the engineer is just kind of peripheral to the process and you know the cats are here and you know we're here to play and you're just you know you're just the mic mover guy and i don't mm. think that's really i don't think that's helpful i think that like i said before it's it takes a lot of a lot of subtlety and trust between the whole team to like really make the best records i really do believe that and so and for engineers i would say the same exact thing like learn 
how hard it is to go into a studio and like make an improvised record live you know like it's so nerve-wracking to do that and to put your name on it and to like invest money and to do all that like you know what i mean yeah it maybe just it's just basic stuff empathy but i do think you know it's like putting yourself in the other person's shoes you know goes a long way but i really do believe like as far as musicians learning about recording like mics are so cheap these days you know you can buy a decent ribbon mic for a couple hundred bucks buy an interface you know learn how to learn a little bit about what you like or at very least when you're in a studio you know within reason ask questions hey i really like the sound you got um what mic are you using oh well it's an rca it's an old rca oh cool okay write that down you know look, research the mic what why do you like that well you know this that and the other thing so yeah. Anyway, I guess I would just say, you know, be be interested in the craft of the other side. And um, mm. and in a way, I think my favorite records are the ones that bring together the playing, the composing and the sound elements, the conceptual elements, like all all are operating um, in communion. There's not there's mm. no tension between them. They're all informing the other. So that's, I think, the ideal. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, one of the videos that I discovered today from you was the, um, the uh, it's kind of grayish with blue and it's about the marbles mm -hmm. um, effect or mm -hmm. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But um, that sounded incredible. I couldn't stop listening to it. Just like <laughs> I listened to it 10 times or something. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that was really another beautiful. one of those little, like sound journal things. Uh, the marbles, it's a modular, uh, a Euro rack module that it basically, it's like a generative um, pitch. It's like a pitch generator. So it organizes, it organizes pitches um, kind of like probabilistically, I guess you could say. So it's, it, and then I think that maybe, I don't remember the video, but it was feeding some other, Euro rack. I think that was just more of like a one-off experiment that I was doing with uh, when I was trying to learn the Euro rack. But yeah, I'm glad you glad you liked that. I don't even remember what that sounds like. So I have to go listen to it. It's uh, also the the rhythm changes, uh, but it has like a um, it seems to have like a, a meter or a general um, not one meter, but the um, like a grid. Yeah, and uh, like random pictures but it seems like like you you fed it with some sort sort of uh, general um choice of notes at the beginning. The marble, and yeah you could you could look it up it's called the mutable instruments marbles again it's one of those things where like once i understood the principle of how that worked i kind of just stole what that module was doing and i programmed it myself so i don't even know if i well last time i've turned that one on but Yeah, I think it's what you say. It basically you kind of give it a space of notes, and it improvises within a sort of a sort of sequential space of a couple pitches. But there is something I have to read the manual on that one again. But there is some way that you can also have it a, an amount of uh, like a probability of change parameter. So it's sort of like mm -hmm. you define a sequence, but then you can give it like fifty percent chance that every you know seventh note will change. So it's like this idea of like it's basically constant but it kind of regenerates these different patterns off of itself and stuff like that so i'm really i love you know i think part of the thing studying electronic music that interested me so much are some of these those kind of compositional spaces where it's like is it composition is it improvisation it's like well mm -hmm. there's a compositional choice about like choosing the note selection 
I mean, I don't know what this video sounds like. I can't even remember, but I just like the general principle of selecting a range of probabilities for notes and then having it kind of meander through these. Um, there's yeah. an artist on my record label called Kenneth Kirshner who has music that kind of works like this. So I'm very much... Yeah, I've listened to, uh, to uh, one of the records that you guys did together. Um, and I think it's... I didn't get around to listen to your piece yet on the record. It's like two pieces. And I think yeah. I listened to his one, which is like 20 minutes, 21 yeah. minutes or something. His, his thing is, you know, definitely coming out of the kind of Feldman like, like language, but, but it's all generic. It reminded me of for Philip Gustin, you know, for Philip Gustin, yeah, yeah, that piece. Definitely. I mean, yeah, Ken is a Feldman diehard Feldman guy, but yes, I do. I know that piece very well. Um, yeah. But his music is generated using a similar kind of thing. It's like, within a pitch space, uh, kind of probabilistic. And then he kind of takes the MIDI data and then creates the pieces out of it. So it's, it's a very unfeldmany approach, but the sound results are similar. He has a new record that's coming out that's, that sounds very different. It's almost kind of like bar talky, like it's like this triple cello piece that's coming out soon. That's really great. Um, but it's again, based on a similar kind of idea of generativity within the limited pitch space. I think that, yeah, stuff like that is of, of interest to me because it kind of elides those zones of, imp, imp, you know, improvisatory and or fixed and improviser. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me. It was really inspiring. And, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you reached out to me, you know. Yeah, man, cool, man. Great, to, great to connect. I'm, I'm such a huge fan of the series and stuff. I didn't get a chance to say that, but, uh, but man, wow, I, I've you. listened to a ton of these. So thank you uh, for, uh, for having the chat. <laughs> thank you, man. <laughs>